That was like the beginning of the end of that. Yeah, he's becoming a bad boy. He's becoming a bad boy. He gets candles stuck up his butt in the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Spoiler. It's not the greatest movie, but that happens. Well, who among us? <laughs> Let people in glass houses, etc. Let the person who has not uh, shoved the first wax cast the first stone. Is that? <laughs> Call no, that 911. Right. Consult your doctor immediately. <laughs> Another episode of Made Me Queer. Hi, I'm Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where gays stop getting you ready for the prom and finally get some sausage curls of their own. That's right. Every episode, I invite a wonderful guest on to join me in pointing the finger of blame at who and or what made us queer. And it feels so good. I hope you had a great week. Welcome back. April Fools is but a shadow behind us, and now uh, only the truth remains. How was it? Did you get punked? Any good stories you want to share? Did you uncover the great pandemic conspiracy and realize that masks are just a tool of oppression on our disease-free faces? If so, good for you. You've done it, haven't you? You've solved the pandemic mystery by yourself. Nancy Drew in the case of conspiracy theorists. <clears throat> My week was a little different. I watched Harold and Maud for the first time. I know I'm about 45, almost 50 years too late on this. Just a warning, this next section will contain spoilers of a 50-year-old movie. I thought Harold and Maud was Mega queer, first of all, a bit heavy-handed, We especially with the Cat Stevens songs, which are great, but we, we get it. Live your truth. You can be this, you can be that. You can braid your hair and then tie it up in your head like a proto-Amy Sedaris slash Liesel from The Sound of Music, and I'm here for it. That movie should also be called Harold and Mom, because there are some heavy mom issues in that movie. But who can't relate to a mom issue? Certainly not me ask my therapist. I bring her up a lot. Hey, Jane, if you're listening. Um, anyway, Harold and Maude was great. Uh, it takes place in San Francisco, which is enough for me, as I've said on the show before. Big fan. The old ruins of the Sutro Baths were the site of a murder in the film. Uh, a hilarious madcap murder. Uh, the film also had fun little cars, cute cars, and centered around the story of a woman who uh, lived her truth and really leaned back into, I suppose, her white privilege, although she was a Holocaust survivor, uh, by flagrantly disobeying the police at the expense of, I think, everyone's personal safety. But I'm, but I'm okay with it. She looked fantastic. Again, the hair was A+. Young Bud Court was giving me some That 70s Show lead character realness, who, the actor whose name I cannot remember at this time. He has a sort of feathered hair that was not unlike my own style when I was in grade school, middle school for our United States non-metric listeners. Yeah, so the two of them, a real, <laughs> I was going to say a May-December friendship, but it's uh, a May-December fourth base by the time we get around to it. And it's great. Who doesn't want to live in a train? 
I would love to live in a train. I've lived on several boats, but never a train. And you know what? That's my 2021 vision board right there. <laughs> Living on a train. I'm going to get a stick and bindle. I'm going to climb aboard the next doorless train I see. And uh, I'll meet you in Tucson, Arizona. Okay, so on to today's episode. It is episode 10. We're double digits, baby. This is exciting. I feel like I deserve candles at the very least. And maybe I'll light some, much to the chagrin of my landlord. My guest today is... Evan Spiegelman, and you were in for a treat. I actually have a really funny story about how I met Evan for the first time. My first encounter with them was when I was working on an anarchist theater ship, and we had sailed from Manhattan up the Hudson River to Hudson, New York. And I got off the boat, and I had a voicemail on my phone that said, I heard you're in town. Our mutual friend thinks we'd get along. Call me. This was from Evan. But Evan thought I was still in New York City. I was not, so we didn't get to meet up until about four years later when I was back in New York on another ship, this time a big chartered cruise ship with an NGO from Japan. These are all very different stories. If you want to hear them, buy my book. I like Evan a lot because Evan is multifaceted. Evan is a performer, a drag monster, their words, not mine, a lighting designer, and co-founder of former New Orleans performance collective, A Skin Horse Theater, which sounds a bit muscly, and of Loud, the New Orleans Queer Youth Theater. Evan has also worked with some superstar artists, such as Taylor Mack, Justin Vivian Bond, Pearl Damour, Penny Arcade, Minx Stoll, Joey Arias, Peaches, and The House of Yes. Is your jaw dropping yet? Because mine is knee length. Evan can also be seen as their trash drag alter ego, Miss Asymmetric, as one half of their duo, Creep Cuts. A quick note before we start, my conversation with Evan was one of the first I recorded for this podcast. And as such, I was still learning about what you Made Me Queer was, what the show format was. This is not Evan's fault. This is my fault. So this conversation kind of meanders from the main question quite a bit. We talk about certainly what made Evan queer, but we talk about a lot of other things. And I hope you'll find it interesting. So just buckle up that cute little seatbelt fanny pack you bought at Hot Topic at the mall and enjoy my conversation with the positively bubbling and practically neon Evan Spiegelman. You made me queer. Yeah, so I started doing what I thought was drag in college, where I'd like put a mop on my head and <laughs> you know um, sing Patti Smith songs or something. Ooh, punk drag. And I still do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I continued through kind of doing you know for the first few years I was in New Orleans, which was right out of college. I was focusing more on the theater work, but it was all pretty gender queer and you know looking back on it I realized that what I was really doing was exploring my own gender mm -hmm. but I didn't know that at the time and you know we were doing plays where I play Alice Liddell who Lewis Carroll based you know Alice in Wonderland off of or Hedwig or these sorts of characters mm -hmm. so then I knew I wanted to make a cabaret piece initially it was a cover show it has gone completely differently since then and had done some cabaret slash drag gigs of course this was my like really sloppy, shitty makeup, shitty makeup, bad guitar playing 
on my part, drag the people <laughs> that were playing guitars behind me were great. I was there. We'll get it in post. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so a friend of mine who had eventually became my roommate for a little period of time and was in one of our plays uh, was also a musician. And I asked him if he wanted to do something. And we initially conceived of this cabaret show called Creep Cuts that was at first a cover show. We wrote an original song or two, did an original sketch or two. And it was a disaster the first time we did it. <laughs> Every tech thing went wrong. Everything went long, all that stuff. And then we realized that to a certain extent, those times when stuff was going wrong and the comedic bits and stuff and some of the nervous laughter when there was a pause where some, I don't know, a wire had come undone or something mm-hmm. was the funniest part. Yeah. And so we leaned into that and created a wholly original hour-long work that they, we would then, you know, perform bits of at different shows and stuff that we're actually now working on getting up for hopefully a tour when this is all happening. And so it's a hour-long electronic music cabaret we like to call agitprop surrealism and anti-fascist clowning i mean so cliche but (laughs) so cliche (laughs) and there were other experiments in drag i did a drag workshop in new orleans with a character that was sort of very short-lived because i just like that found home in this place Uh i've started to go back and forth as to whether i even call it drag because there's a specific history with drag and it's very expansive and i think i'm very much in team your drag is valid and i'm I'm gonna interrupt you because i want to ask you about that yeah i think because i've seen some of your work and yeah like it's there's definitely like a performance art quality to it but it's so i love the visuals and i think one of the things we're working through as we learn about broadly learn about you know gender expression and gender identity and orientation and how these things intersect on a bigger scale than we have in the past i think we're still hung up on drag is this idea of men in dresses there's something misogynist in it for me where it looks like men saying to women i can even be a better woman than you and I'm, I don't think that's the most interesting part of drag. I think we're using this as a tool of oppression again, instead of like deconstructing gender and mixing it with, with art. Yeah, I, I think there's a place for all of the different variations, whether it's sort of, you know, the drag queen story hour or mm-hmm. the 4am, everybody's coked out and you're performing for a bunch of cocksuckers or <laughs> the putting on, you know, makeup for a cis woman on a, because of the growth of the YouTube beauty vlogger thing. But I do think that being the whole of it, the cis men wearing dresses, that's where, you know, people like RuPaul, because RuPaul has a business interest in maintaining this and has just like become bizarrely anti-curious yeah, um, yeah. and uh, a historical about his own communities when he was coming up in drag, that drag has always been, you know, the pioneers have been trans women. Yes, yes. And there have always been all these so-called deviations from what people understand as the norm cis men doing drag only comes from the fact that people understand that as a norm recently because it's making money but you know and this is no shade to any of the rue girls because they're amazing oh for sure it's the show that and it's limitations that bug me out and it's not that there's never been a trans woman on that show and it's not that there's never been you know this year there's a trans masculine person yeah but it's that centering of cis men as kind of the norm when there's nothing in the history of drag that really shows that yeah yeah the drag has been much more expansive and that's why i'm i'm much more on team all drag is valid but there's an a, a little asterisk to that which says respect your history respect your community respect who was doing it before you you know because there's a lot of gatekeeping in drag which is the main reason we have a joke about it in the show 
about, I can't remember which Rue girl said that, like, if you're not wearing nails, you're not doing drag. And we just take that and we, <laughs> you know, it's become kind of a cliche now to make fun of that because it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. And so the gatekeeping sometimes can give me pause when it's on the level of, like, you gotta wear pads or you gotta have hair, whatever it is, which mm-hmm. is not that common. But uh, I think there's also something that is mistaken as gatekeeping, or maybe it is, but for a much more kind of legit purpose, which is, like, be cognizant of what you are stepping into and who really, how do I put this, uh, of who blazed the trail for you. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we need to uncritically love everything that came before us. That's just nostalgia. But if you are new to drag and you're going to trash a trans woman for doing it because it's quote unquote cheating, which was sort of RuPaul's implication. Obviously RuPaul's not new on the scene, but a lot of people have picked that phrasing up or that there have been cis woman drag performers it cis woman drag performative cis woman drag for a long time the point being you know read up learn your history and engage with it absolutely and i first of all i'm absolutely here to say that i am front and center for kylie impersonator or like whatever yeah there's something for everybody absolutely but also i completely agree with you on a lot of those points the fact that something that to me is originally a queer fringe property and has sort of been leased to the mainstream to enjoy. But if the gold medal of drag becomes, oh, you you pass as female presenting, that is one slice of the drag pie that can be accomplished with that or, or that, that whole mode of expression of a lot of things. There's just so much interesting stuff out there that I like to see it all get its turn at bat. Yeah, and it's not a zero-sum game, right? No. We can acknowledge complex truths and go, hey, it's great that these Rue girls have this platform to make all this money. Like, now you can make money as a drag queen, which is kind of, in some ways, is amazing and is a lifesaver for a lot of, of people. Not that, you know, you weren't making anything before Rue showed up or anything, but I'm, these people that are going on these these big tours, you can acknowledge that, that that can be a positive while also going, but maybe the container that it's in has sort of icky elements or is an ideal. It's a weird frontier, hey, how now, like, you can be a queen and get like a Pepsi licensing deal. Like imagine that 15 years ago. Well, you know, and in that one way, that's the, probably the area Rue knows best because yes. that was how Rue blazed a trail in the ways that he did was as, you know, a model and a cover girl and all that stuff and often the first drag performer to do so in some of the places that he broke through. So, yeah. you know, in, in some ways that's the most honest transference of drag race <laughs> <laughs> success because it's very much within his milieu. That's right. Sign that Hulu deal, baby. Yeah. The other thing too, and I I think this extends to theater, so maybe back to some of the other things that you do. Everyone in Drag Race, especially the American Drag Race, those queens got buckets of money to go on that show. Because you have the expectation becomes like, I have $10,000 prosthetic wings that jut from my back, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like busted ass dollar store drag, which is awesome and just as vital. And this happens in theater, right? Where like to quote unquote, be a professional production, you need to have a flashy set or a flashy costume to not turn off an audience. Like, how do you think that gets negotiated? Well, I think the first thing that that comes to mind is that all of these queens and same with theater, you know, they got to keep working. Because, yeah, they might. There, I think it's Bob the Drag Queen has a stand up special where, you know, he said something to the effect of $100,000 in New York gets, like, gets you like a vodka soda and a half or something <laughs> like that. And while that's not quite true, you know, the, di- the major difference, I think, between drag and theater is in theater, your budget is coming from somewhere else. If you're a performer in a play, somehow, whether it's on a micro or a major, major budget scale, someone else has found that money. In drag, 
you know, even though some of these Rue girls are probably getting free samples and things like that from companies that want them to promote them, they still got to pay for their own drag. Drag is expensive as hell, especially when you get to that level and it is expected that you have a certain production value. My love is for the the dollar store stuff, even as I acknowledge how incredible and gorgeous and imaginative the expensive looks can be. I just like something where you can sort of see the human (laughs) hand a little bit more, even if, or sometimes especially if that human hand is messy as hell. Okay, I'm so glad you brought this up because the messiness of the human hand is partly responsible for us being queer, which is why I've called you here today. But the good news is that we know now, Evan, this is not our fault. The experience of, of being led down the path of queerness, which when we were younger, we didn't know why, but now we know through science, of course, there are so many reasons. Science! Science has saved everything. For example, if you take too many liberal electives at university right or if you get a little bit too close to the floor while you're playing limbo (laughs) all of these things can make you queer and we know that now yes we do but we didn't know before and so it's it's not our fault that we're big old queers and so the reason i've invited you here today is i want to give you a platform to blame who or what made you queer who knows what exactly made me queer um, <laughs> and continues to make me queer every day. That's right. You know, I think one of the great things that, uh, that you realize when you're queer is that identity is not a fixed point. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a, you evolve as a, as a person, so does how you identify. And sometimes you discover things that have always been there, and sometimes you discover new things mm-hmm. and just match your life experience to go with either what you've always known or what you're discovering. But I can definitely, like, identify some points that I fucking knew. Yeah, give me some of the origin story seeds. So the origin story seed is embarrassing because it is Leonardo (laughs) DiCaprio's fault. (gasps) It really is. I think he was responsible for a lot of uh, queer initiation. I think so too. And this was like just post-Titanic, like the beach, you remember that movie era? Of course, the puka shell necklace. Exactly, that whole like very, very late 90s vibes. I had just started, like, I was around 12 or 13, you know, right around bar mitzvah age. And Were you bar mitzvah? Was, was it themed? I was. It was themed to Leonardo DiCaprio. No, Could it wasn't themed. It was, <laughs> uh, I think I don't want that theme anymore. Maybe if you asked me back then, I would have wanted it. But um, now he can go off into the woods and eat his bison heart or whatever he did for the Revenant. And, <laughs> and he will. And can I tell you as well, I once tried three times unsuccessfully when I was drunk with some friends to sneak into a Mamma Mia themed bat mitzvah. I really thought that you were about to say when I was drunk, I really tried to eat raw bison heart. <laughs> and that's how I got worms the second time. <laughs> Wait, a Mamma Mia themed bar mitzvah. Yeah, it was in a place called Sunrise, Florida. We were at a hotel and they were holding the bat mitzvah there. And there was a like a Mamma Mia themed playbill on an easel in front of this banquet hall. So we tried to sneak in twice through the front. The third time was through the industrial kitchen, like the service kitchen in the hotel. Y'all were committed. We were really committed. And finally, I think like, I just remember the father, I think, looking into our eyes honestly and just being like, why do you want to come in here? Yeah. (laughs) And we were like, 
That's a great question, sir, and good evening. <laughs> <laughs> what, you didn't want to play um, corny games with plastic props and things like this? You know, I don't, I've never been to a bat mitzvah, so I think uh, I don't quite know what they were up to. You know, I'd be interested to, to look a little bit more into the history of it, because I know for you know, some of the ones I went to as a child were so extravagant. I mean, un- you know, it makes some, like, extravagant weddings put to shame. And there's a part of me that just wants to, like, is this an American, this feels very American. <laughs> for this thing that these kids who are not terribly religious are, you know, they're not going to remember their Haftarah portion, you know, 15 <laughs> years from now. So like, is this like Hanukkah, you know, where it's a, it is important, but it's kind of just responding to some of the pressures of having a capitalist performance of your religion. Right. Who is this for? But I, we digress back to your, we do digress. Bar mitzvah. <laughs> we were talking about Leonardo DiCaprio. That's and this, right. This is my new Jewish holiday podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, and with that, naturally the next sentence would be so I started looking at porn around that age <laughs> this was through the internet this was through the internet God but the when internet. I was your age <laughs> so we you know uh, youngins we had to dial up our internet through the phone line that's right so I couldn't just you know send nudes on my phone and kind of be all sneaky about it I uh, you know if you were going to be looking at porn on the internet if you were you know lucky enough to have that have internet access you go down and you go to the like family computer room to quote-unquote do homework. <laughs> and everyone had to stay off the phone while you were on the internet. Exactly. And everybody had to, you know, endure that horrifying noise that now people are nostalgic for. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, thank you. And maybe if this doesn't work out, uh, I could be a modem impersonator, a professional. That can add that to the job list. I'll send you the clip. You can add it to your reel. Great. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> In the role of modem. Although that does feel appropriate. Old modem. Oh! Oh, um, uh, yeah, but you know, when you are a non-binary actor feeling like you're faking it for all these uh, gender non-appropriate roles that you kind of sort of fit into, mm-hmm. old modem seems like that would be a, a good non-binary role. Yeah, that's what I want. You know, I, I joke with a lot of non-binary friends of mine about like the, the various fictional characters uh, we identify more with, and they're either ethereal or <laughs> completely demonic. Yeah. Um, there's very little naturalism in our conversations. So you're looking at porn on the internet. <laughs> right. Take us back. So you're in the basement. You're you're a tween. You're doing homework. I did air quotes. But you're actually Googling what? Uh, straight porn. It was mostly just like Playboy style nudes. You know, you, it was a little bit more frustrating to do a deep dive because sure. it took a lot longer for the websites to look. Man, I'm really, I'm really sounding like old modem. Okay, you are old modem. That's what I'm calling you. So these are tasteful nudes. Yeah, or they were just like, you know, portraits. Of, they were like, just like normal shots of naked women. There wasn't like, it wasn't like hardcore porn or anything. Sure, perfect. You know, I, I just looking at those being like, I mean, this is nice. You know, they're pretty. It's fine. I think this is supposed to be doing more for me, but all right. (laughs) And at the same time, I was a total film nerd. Mm. From middle and high school, I was, you know, I grew up in Boston and we were lucky enough to have some really awesome Indian foreign and rep film houses, Mm. some of which are still around. And so we'd always be going to the weirdo movies or, you know, like, yes, please give me that Gus Van Sant movie where nobody talks for two hours and they're just walking (laughs) through the desert, which was a little later. But point of story. So I would like get these like film magazines and I had one. It was like one of those ones that was total fluff. It was just sort of a series of press releases and Mm -hmm. bullshit interviews. And lo and behold, there's one on the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. And I just like looked at it and went, oh, 
Yes. Because he was like shirtless in the water and he had that like corny puka shell necklace on, the whole thing. And this was also, if and correct me if I'm wrong, this was post-Romeo and Juliet, but also Leonardo DiCaprio had this sort of glossy, it was like the McDonald's M arch of a bang situation, like very like feathered hair. Yeah, I wasn't mad at it at all. I no, mean, there was some femme sensuality happening. There was. Maybe that's like, maybe this is why I always was into twinks because of because of this formative moment mm-hmm. although he was a little he was starting to like grow out of his twink phase in the beach okay. that was like the beginning of the end of that yeah he's becoming a bad boy he's becoming a bad boy he gets candles stuck up his butt in the wolf of wall street <laughs> spoiler it's not the greatest movie but that happens well who among us <laughs> let people in glass houses etc let the person who has not uh shoved the first wax cast the first stone is that <laughs> call no, that 911 sense. right consult your doctor immediately but i you know i didn't it's almost like a cliche that I had like a formative moment because with most transitions in my life it isn't there isn't you know uh, when I realized I was non-binary it was not like a switch clicked I mean there was a definitive moment when I decided to come out but there wasn't a like yeah. This was like a cartoon where it was like, oh, that thing I thought I was supposed to be feeling with those other pictures is happening with this picture. I see what's going on here. Did you like connect A to B or were you just like, wait a minute, something's weird? No, I definitely, I was lucky enough to grow up in a household that was not homophobic. Oh, and what's that like? I know. I mean, that's like <laughs> the most privileged thing I can possibly fucking say, but it, it is true and I'm grateful to them. Good for you. And you know, my uncle is, is gay and you know works at a gay rights law firm. So it's like... I was very, you know, it was very clear, Flying Spaghetti Monster, bless them, that if I came out, it wasn't going to be an issue, which again, makes me enormously privileged. And I fully recognize that. But there was sort of a template for you to see, oh, this is the hole I'm fitting into, so to speak. As it were. As it were. I mean. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah. And I still had a whole bucket of shit to figure out. So, you know, mm-hmm. that shows you just how, I mean, like, you know, if I didn't have those support systems in my life or that knowledge in my life, it would have been completely overwhelming as it is for most, I, I would venture to guess most people mm-hmm. when they come out at a young age, uh, because there's a real danger there. I was very blessed that at least that part was removed. It, but, uh, you know, I didn't, there were still things that were confusing. And this isn't at all a question of oppression necessarily. Um, so I'm not trying to compare anything here, but just mm-hmm. what happened in my own experience was that I was like, okay, so I'm gay, but I, I continued asking women out in middle school for a while because I was like, no, that's just what you do. You just ask like women are for the dating and the, it was, you know, internalized. <laughs> right. mis- it was internalized misogyny too, right? It was like women are for the dating and the marrying. Right. And then I can like have my little, you know, pornograph over here for my real. Sure. We'll just have that computer in the basement, the wife upstairs. Well, I mean, and if I was either born in a different era or born, you know, with a different family, that could have been my reality. And it's the reality for a lot of people, even still, where we go, things are so accepting and blah, blah, blah. You're not well, wrong. Yeah. And I know so many people who came out in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, just like as I was coming out, there was a, a, a classmate of mine whose dad came out mm. in this way because it was the f- beginning of a generation generational shift where that was a little less 
taboo. Yes. But it, you know, it's still very much alive and well. And imagine how much harder that would be like, sure, I had to tell my hand school, um, hand, <laughs> hand. No, hand school. school was what I was doing before I found that Leonardo. That's right. That's right. It was, uh, and I did learn a lot there, but I did drop out before <laughs> graduating. <laughs> yes. I did have to tell my handful of high school girlfriends, you know, as was sort of my queer evolution happened. But it's not like I had to tell my kids and grandkids and my wife and my in-laws. And I can't imagine what a process that would be to work through. Yeah. And I, you know, just have like all like so much respect for people that are continuing to struggle or have struggled Mm -hmm. with that decision. um, Because these are not maybe maybe you don't like your spouse or whatever. But I think for the most part, it's not a question of you don't love your family or your children or anything like that. So it makes it doubly doubly hard because you're a lot of folks that are going through this and are trying to hurt they love mm-hmm. some people maybe they are maybe the loved ones deserve it you know not every family is harmonious <laughs> that's a good point maybe if you hate your spouse it's the perfect secret weapon to be like oh yeah and i'm queer and i'm 70 so fuck you right you know it kind of ties into the drag conversation in the sense that one of the things that happens when you tie progress with capitalism is you tie progress with capitalism's demands so the fact that at that point when i was coming out the big deal things were like ellen and stuff like that it's not that that's not important it's that it's not even one step along the way in a linear path, but it just fills one need, maybe in a more sort of multi-dimensional sense, because then you had these, after you got through like a decade of like the shittiest gay movies ever, which were also simultaneously <laughs> softcore porn, you know, which were, uh, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart. There were also some great, truly queer independent films, mm-hmm. but then over the past five or 10 years, you have quite a bit of gay representation. Trans representation is starting to happen more, mm-hmm. but a lot of it does with the gay representation did and still does conform to what capitalism wants, which is young, hot, and almost always white. And that's changing to a certain extent. But so it means that, to tie it back in, we don't have many fictionalized stories about our queer elders. Or if we do, it's when they were young and hot. You know, not that they're not hot now. uh, But when they were hot according to capitalism's demands of what that means. So I want to see more stories about that. I want to hear more about the person that's struggling to come out after they've been married for 40 years in a heterosexual relationship. You know, I want to hear about the trans women who have been around for uh, a little while and have stories to tell us from the past few decades, especially because we've lost so many people. Now our generation's been through two pandemics. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Exactly. You know, I had I have some wonderful queer elders in my life, but they're few. We need those stories even more. We need to be building intergenerational bridges. You're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, of course, we unfortunately lost a whole generation of elders and mentors because of, you know, AIDS epidemic. And uh, I am heartened by the amount of progress we've made because we really have made so much in so many ways. And yeah. Like we've said, it does skew to the mainstream. But for example, I just watched this great movie called The Watermelon Woman. Oh, I love that movie. Yes. Yeah. The first movie directed by a black lesbian. Was it the first? That we know of. Yeah, out black lesbian. Cheryl Dunya, I want to pronounce her name as. But the statements I saw her make in that movie in the 1990s are almost exactly the same as I've seen queer performers like Lena Waithe say recently. And so we do get stuck in this sort of tide pool of like, because it is so money dependent or sort of mainstream progress dependent where we have to keep making the same statement to whatever, you know, the cishet world that, oh, this is a trans person or this is a queer person of color. And this is why you shouldn't be afraid of that. And like, it does feel like the steps are, I mean, with any movement, such baby steps. 
but I'm heartened by it and I want more of it yeah. and more flavors of it too. Like give me the nuances, not just the $10,000 wings, please. Absolutely. You know, there's a part of me that just as an artist wishes we could get to the point where there was so much representation that we could stop talking about representation because yes. for me, you know, representation is life-saving. As an artistic question, it's boring as hell. I know I feel this way. I know other queer artists feel this way. I certainly can't speak for everyone. But the idea that your job is to essentially, like you're saying, educate straight people, educate cis people, bring them along, and that that is the number one reason for this representation being important. It's like, well, that's extremely important. And I wish we could get to the point where we're talking about other ideas, where we're talking about dreams, where we're talking about idiosyncrasies, where we're talking about things where people don't feel like they have to speak for their entire communities when they are in a movie. You I just know? snapped in the air. Uh, people <laughs> in, in Radio Land can't see that. And that makes me think of another thing I saw recently Taylor Max Holiday Sauce. Yeah, we love Judy. Which was legendary because I think it is that thing too that overlaps so well with art, where the idea of genre comes in. With things we don't know how to immediately classify are confusing and maybe a little frightening for some of us, but. That is a body of work that I think is constantly challenging what it is and expectations of it, especially with a person who, I mean, their pronoun is Judy. So playing with everything, just such a, an approach where there's no shortcut as an audience member. Yeah. And one of the things that's remarkable about Taylor, and I mean, you know this, but you know, the, the listeners at home might not, mm-hmm. um, that I've been involved in a couple of Taylor Mac productions. Sometimes, you know, we did Lily's Revenge in New Orleans and I was in one of their plays and then was a cast member at Dandy Minion for the 24-hour. They did a 24-hour history of popular music where each hour was a decade from 1776 to 2016. We had our own little cast sleeping section if we really needed it. And when I say cast, it's like a cast of 300 people. Phenomenal. Matched in grandeur probably only by that Mamma Mia-themed bat mitzvah, which I tried to break into. Legend yeah. still tells of the Mamma Mia bar mitzvah. A cast of hundreds. <laughs> yes. But one of Taylor's biggest talents is being able to explain things to people that are not part of a, a community or at least get them on board for the next little bit of time or however long the, the gag goes or whatever. You know, when uh, Taylor's performing, I think that there's a sense of we're building community in this room. My community is this, but I'm going to acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of straight people, a lot of cis people, a lot of people who are not in queer culture because a lot of straight and cis people sort of are um, Mm. at least peripherally aware of queer culture and able to bring those folks along. Yeah. When I'm making my stuff, I think that's incredible, but I sort of make an assumption that like, so, you know, Creep Cuts is just two people. It's me and Dylan Hunter who plays my imaginary friend and that's his character and he also creates all of the electronic music that I add lyrics to. But even though, you know, I am a queer non-binary person and he is a cis straight white man, there's sort of an assumption of queer literacy in the show where I'm like, we're just going to go. And if you want to look this shit up, you are more than welcome to. And to me, that's my way of making queers feel comfortable in my space by making it their space, even though it's chaotic and cartoonish and surreal And so it may not necessarily immediately represent like a gay bar. There is an assumption of vocabulary, of gender fluidity, of all these sorts of things that immediately might make straight people go, what the fuck is happening? 
But I love that when I'm an audience member, this feeling of what the fuck is happening, as long as the what the fuck is still sort of pulling you in and making you curious. I think one of the differences between Taylor's approach and my approach, although there are many differences, Mm -hmm. is that if they don't know it, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. They can get exposed to these things and figure it out on their own time. Yes, and I think confusion is underrated. I mean, y'all watch Twin Peaks. Take a bit of confusion with your entertainment. So listen, I'm going to have to let you go soon, but before I do... Evan, would you like to play a game? Sure, let's do it. This game is called Queer Queerer Queerist. Oh boy, here we go. It's very hard to say. So that's my part of the project and now you have to participate. So here are the rules. It's very simple. I'm going to list three things. You have to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. Okay. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes. Okay, three things. Sung vows, like sung wedding vows. Uh Uh-huh. The second thing. A sung answering machine message. Uh Uh-huh. The third thing, restaurants where the waiters and waitresses sing while they work. Maybe they sing your order. Maybe there's a song break. So just to reiterate, sung vows, a sung answering machine message, and restaurants where the waiters and waitresses sing while they work, least queer to most queer. Oh, man. So I'm going to say with the biggest, the asterisk on this is that... (laughs) I don't believe in necessarily more or less queer. I believe in more or less queer politics, but I think... I know I'm forcing you into a very... Yes. (laughs) The asterisk is that uh, for the straight people listening, there is nothing more queer than feeling like you're not queer enough. So with that aside... (laughs) And to address confusion, if you're not entirely on board yet, we are uh, sending ourselves up a little bit. So don't take this too seriously, world. Exactly. So I will put... We're going to assume... Let's see. Sung vows, sung answer. I'm going to say, actually, people at the restaurant singing, my instinct is to put it as least queer and here's why. I adore, you know, the the Stardust Diner and tourist traps like that in New York City. And those are some of the hardest working, most talented people you will ever see. But... It does remind me of Broadway, because a lot of that is intended as a funnel to Broadway. And I think while you have some shows that are very queer, as a whole, Broadway is gay, but not queer. Oh. You know? And it's getting there. It's getting to a little bit more of a... But not at the pace that, like, you know, even Netflix is. (laughs) So just for shading Broadway, let's let's put it in in the last. But not shading any of the workers. No. I'm shading the... System and the producer. Take that paycheck and run, girl. So at least queer. Singing waiters and waitresses. Next up, queerer. I'm going to go sung vows in the middle because of the word vows and because of the the, the idea of marriage. I was going to put it in least queer. Mm. But... I don't know about these people's marriage. Maybe they have like a great polycule and they are getting married for legal reasons. Maybe they're getting married because they want to get married. But, you know, maybe they have a freaky deaky queer life. You can have a very queer life without being freaky deaky at all. So I'm reserving my judgment and putting it in the neutral middle. Safe choice. Because while I do not think gay marriage is a queer politics that by itself should be pursued at the expense of all else, which... We saw sort of happen a little bit. But each of the individual marriages can be any which way. But of course. Which leaves as queerest sung answering machine message. Sung answering machine message because you don't have to record a message. You can leave with the robot voice or whatever. But, you know, individualize your experience. You know, sing a a Pansy Division song or something like that to welcome everybody into your mailbox. Let everyone know exactly whose DMs you're dropping into. Welcome everybody into your mailbox is going on all my t-shirts for 2021. 
Yes. <laughs> exactly. Drop in, girls. Welcome, everybody, into my mailbox. It's definitely something I'm looking forward to after the pandemic is over. Even an introvert can handle that. <laughs> well, thank you for playing. Congratulations, you've won. Hooray. Prizes will be in the mail. Before I let you go, Evan, anything you want to plug? I would just say, if you want to go ahead and check out my Instagram, which is Ms. M. Z Asa A S A metric M E T R I C. When I can talk about the exciting projects I have coming up, because I have a couple that I'm really excited about, <sighs> you will see them there. Fantastic! So follow them, Ms. Asa metric on the Insta. Well, I want to thank you because uh, a lot of things made me queer, but this conversation has made me that much queerer, Evan. Achievement unlocked! <laughs> Excellent! Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. This was a blast. Queer, queer, queer. Okay, and that is our 10th show. My, how the time flies like a winged bird, perhaps a lark or a peacock or something like that. Anyway, if you have anything you want us to hear, me to hear, and potentially our listeners to hear, email it to youmademequeer at gmail.com. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast if you like it. Otherwise, I kind of just feel like I'm shouting into the void sometimes. And, you know, who doesn't like a little five-star feedback? Ladies, am I right? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And cue credits. You've Made Me Queers created, produced, and edited by me, Trevor Campbell. Our theme song is by Critty. For more from music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our website is youmademequeer.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handle is at youmademequeer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every Thursday, the Lord's Day. And from the bottom of my big bent heart, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.